Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about the effects of the Ottoman Empire's capture of Constantinople on the Balkan region in the mid-15th century. This instability, combined with the uniquely volatile nature of the Kingdom of Wallachia, made the perfect conditions for the rise of Vlad III, better known as Vlad the Impaler. This time, we'll pick up the story just as Vlad declares open war on the Ottoman Empire. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. We've been talking about uh, Vlad the Impaler, who's finally grown into his name a little bit. He has. He's. He, I think he's done enough impaling to really, to really deserve that name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe. I believe it's uh, Tepish in uh, in Romanian. I could be saying that wrong, but it means impaler. <laughs> yeah, Vlad Tepish killed well over twenty thousand. Ottoman troops. Um, and some civilians by the sounds of it. Yes. I said troops. Let's just stick with 20,000 Ottomans. I, I don't think he discriminated much. And what's more, very much to the contrary of the orders given by, or suggestions, I suppose, given by his his ally, the king of Hungary, who he just informed through a letter that he had broken the peace with the Ottomans. And I kind of doubt that uh, Matthias Corvinus was that happy about that. Probably not. You know who was even less happy? Mehmed II, yeah. leader of the Ottomans. Yeah. He was really unhappy about what was going on here. Well, you know, and the Hungarian leader probably didn't want this at that very moment in time. But, I mean, this was kind of a goal. Maybe not in this yeah. fashion. Yeah, I mean, an, an eventual goal. He had technically taken money from the Pope to drive the Ottomans out of, of Europe. But what Vlad was doing wasn't exactly driving them out. It was kind of just slaughtering them without really doing a whole lot to cripple them politically, economically, militarily. He was just killing. This was more of a brutal weird revenge kind of thing and this is one of the places where vlad becomes a really interesting character not just through his actions but through our reactions to what he's doing because he's a terrorist he is committing military acts not with the goal of defeating an enemy in mind but with the goal of terrifying them in mind there's no strategy 
it's just well killed. Well, I, so I, I don't mean that. I, there's uh, there's no traditional military strategy. Yeah, there is a very deliberate social strategy. Yeah, I, I want to get a little bit more into that when we're finished the story, maybe in the in the second half of this episode. But yeah, I, I think I think looking at Vlad and our reactions to him, as well as the reactions of others, both today and contemporary to him, are are really interesting because. He is, and again, to use a very loaded term, he's an extremist. He uh, he's, he's going to great lengths to protect things that he believes in. And whether or not what he's doing is justified is about as up for debate as anything possibly could be. But enough of that for right now. Let's get back to the story. I believe we left off with uh, Mehmed II was furious um, about all of the people that Vlad had been killing. Yeah. He was so angry that he personally led an exp- expedition into Wallachia with uh, well over 90,000 troops. 90,000. That seems like a lot. It's, it's a pretty sizable uh, army at this point in time, for sure. You, you wouldn't hear 90,000 and shrug your shoulders. You would get worried. And for his part, Vlad could only raise about 30,000 on his side. There were a couple of very small kind of probing battles to begin with to figure out what was going on. And Vlad very quickly realized that he did not have the men uh, to fight a traditional pitched battle against the Ottomans and win. He's really more of a, you know, sneak up and slaughter kind of guy. Uh, yeah, and that's how he's been operating so far, but that was largely because he hadn't been given the go-ahead to actually pitch traditional battle against the Ottomans by his his Hungarian allies. It's not that he wouldn't fight that battle. In fact, I think he would love to fight that battle. He did fight that battle at times. Vlad was quintessentially Valachian in that he was willing to do whatever it took to protect the interests of Valachia. And anything beyond that specific goal was flexible, was elastic. And so if that meant fighting a pitched battle for the glory of Valachia, so be it, to battle. Traditionally in warfare, the point where you can guarantee a victory for yourself is when you have about three to one superiority. Anything less than three to one superiority, and it's a toss-up. You can't guarantee victory. 90,000 versus 30,000. Three to one. Mehmet had it in the bag. So Vlad went, okay, no problem, and began to controlled retreat. You've most likely heard of the term scorched earth policy. Yep. Vlad employed it. That means that any farms that they retreated past, they set fire to the grain, any food stores, any animals, be they for food or for work, killed. Usually poisoned. Wells, poisoned. All in an attempt to make the advance of the Ottomans as difficult as possible and constantly retreating back to the capital of uh, Wallachia, uh, Tergoviste. I'm going to say that 
that was a pretty good one. We're going to maybe leave that there. <laughs> maybe just call it the capital from now on. I don't know. Maybe if I'm feeling real good about it, I'll try it again. Later, you you nailed it. I, you know, I, it sounded like I, I knew what I was doing, it did. didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> They're retreating back towards the capital. <clears throat> and <laughs> the whole time making it as difficult as I can for the Turks to the point that he began employing biological warfare. Anyone that became sick, he sent to mingle with the Turks. There was actually a fairly sizable outbreak of bubonic plague at this point in the Turkish army, most likely because of an infection from a Valachian soldier. How did they just, like, get in there, though? So, it's not like everyone had a driver's license. Yeah, fair. And, and, he, and, like, he knew how to blend in, but, like, not everybody's going to know. Well, the other thing, too, is that Valachia has been on the borders of the Ottoman Empire in some fashion or another for hundreds of years. It's not that they don't know anything about Turks. Fair. And to be honest, there's a very good chance that most of them in there have at least some Turkish heritage. Um, right. Many of them would speak a Turkish language. And... You know, they've had over 20,000 opportunities to get themselves some Turkish uniforms or other outfits. So, yeah. you know, when, when you have an army of 90,000, okay, how many, how many people would you say were in your graduating class at high school? A couple hundred? Yeah. Would you be able to recognize and name every single person to the point that if somebody showed up there... That wasn't supposed to be there. You could guarantee that they weren't supposed to be there. No, that's a couple hundred. Try ninety thousand. Fair. So somebody comes up and tells tells you in your native tongue, "Hello, you know, hi, how's it going? Crummy weather we're having," and then sneezes on you. <laughs> you know, like I, it's not it's not like they're walking up to Mehmed the Second himself and being like, "Hey, what's going on?" They're mingling with the infantrymen. Right. They're trying to, you know, cut them off at the knees. They're not, you know, this is not a complicated operation. As long as you can get in there and, and get close to people, you have a chance of, you know, doing some damage. Fair. Yeah. Super sneaky. Very low down. Seems to be his style. Kind of distasteful. Yeah. But effective. They did get sick. And yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I find it interesting too. You're 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 very much focusing on on Vlad as being like a, a very sneaky low down kind of operator, like no honor kind of thing. You haven't given me a ton of reason to feel otherwise. Yeah. And that's fair. Sure. At this but, juncture. I mean, what about the fact that he's trying to defend his homeland from an incredibly threatening and and potentially annihilating force well and if, if you wanted to frame it another way i suppose you could call him very resourceful mm -hmm. he's taking the you know rules of of warfare this three to one rule and he's saying all right i gotta make those odds a little better before we really get this started mm -hmm. so let's just uh thin the herd a little bit sure resourceful works uh desperate potentially is another way that you could frame that i have trouble having too much sympathy for him given that he he started it, I guess, is the juvenile way to say it. But I'm absolutely playing devil's advocate at this point. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to change your mind on 
on the moral character of, of Vlad the Appalent. <laughs> yeah. I feel like he's starting from behind the eight ball just having that name. Yeah. But again, one of the things that I find most interesting about him is the way that he's viewed by different groups, again, throughout different periods of time. And yeah, the the idea that he would dare to fight a war without, you know, sending notice of when the battle would be. I mean, we don't do that anymore. But. So uh, resourceful and ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, I'm 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 definitely not trying to push any uh, agenda other than whatever the opposite of what you're saying is. Just to, <laughs> yeah. just to present as much of a rounded uh, picture of him as I can. Totally fair. Yeah, it's it's just uh, like like I said, it's it's hard to even the way that I'm telling this story is absolutely going to color your impression of why he's doing these things and whether or not doing these things is okay or how okay they are. Or, I mean, the, the, one of the things that's very convenient about more recent history is that it's pretty easy to take the biggest conflict of the 20th century, namely world war two and frame it in a good versus evil sort of light and not, have to make too many concessions to make that narrative work you can do it and you can you can make a pretty strong argument for it and we're a little bit lucky that we have it so easy as to frame it as a as a moral victory as well as a political military one right that's not the case for most wars in history uh it hasn't been the case for most wars since but I think as a society, as a culture, we do still have this idea that wars can be just, wars can be moral, and that they're, that it's very easy to find who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. We don't have that luxury in this story. Well, and we've also got, you know, the lens of 600 years. We've got the lens of 600 years. We've got the lens of, um, you know, our own personal moral judgments. We have the lens of our general socialized moral judgments uh which aren't personal but are kind of ingrained throughout uh you know the way that we're raised the way that we're taught to think about the world and a lot of those things were kind of blind to the way they affect our own perspective you know there's there's so many factors that go into this right and all i'm really trying to say is that there are a lot of people who look at vlad the impaler as a national hero there are a lot of people who see him in a heroic light there are people that while he was alive saw him in a heroic light. And I don't think it's as simple as saying, you know, well, he didn't fight under traditional rules of war. That makes him a bad guy because I think that's imposing a level of that morality of the conflict that we kind of like to transplant from World War II and put onto other conflicts. We're always looking for who the who the right person to win was supposed to be. Right. When in reality, both sides of this was were pretty terrible. Well, and I was going to say, I'm not necessarily even looking for a right side here because I don't actually think anybody in this story is coming out terribly well. No, they're not. They're absolutely not. War in general in history has been between two terrible people for dumb reasons. If you look at the majority of reasons that wars start, they're for dumb reasons. They're for bad, small reasons that, if they even bother to hide them, are just hidden versions of 
because I want your stuff or because <laughs> I don't like you. And, you know, between a relatively small group of people in power, are these decisions made? Well, exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 it's messy stuff. And it's, it's like I said, we, we're, we're a little bit lucky to have that convenience of the good versus evil morality because we get to, we get to frame those, those conflicts in uh, a way that uh, justifies a lot of things that maybe shouldn't be justified, but it, it gives us that, that luxury of, of uh, perspective that's, that, that's much more comfortable than it could have been. Anyways, we're way off track. That's cool. Mehmed is coming up the road, can't find a decent well to save his life. Got all these new soldiers who are real sick. Keeps finding rotting calves by the side of the road. It's just, it's it's a slog, man. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> when they get close enough to the capital, Vlad makes a decision. Which is basically, you know what, I don't want to deal with a siege. We're not going to survive a siege. The capital isn't cut out for one. We're not really prepared for like a proper holdout hmm. that's not going to go well for us so we should do what we can to try and increase our odds as best as we can this led to what's known as the night attack of Chirgaviste, in which about three hours after sunset vlad got his entire army ready he and a number of people who he thought were good enough at this sort of thing dressed as turks entered the the encampment where the entire Turkish army was was sleeping for the night, staging to uh, approach Chirgaviste the next day. And he went looking for Mehmed's tent. Now, what he didn't know when he began this night raid was that there had been a general order given that all Ottoman soldiers stay inside their tents after dark, hmm. partially to maintain order, partially to uh, keep panic down if anything did happen overnight. I was thinking maybe they were aware of the tactic of, you know... Them. Also a little bit of that. Yeah, because it's happened a few times by now. Once they had figured out where, more or less, where everything in the camp was, the entire army was called in. About 15,000 Turkish casualties. Vlad got the wrong tent. He instead killed two Grand Viziers. Rather than Mehmed, but this could have been a very different story if he had gotten that tent right. If I was writing the novel, he would have probably gotten Mehmed's tent. Because, wow, the just sheer guts of pulling off this Oh, tent. yeah. That's massive. Brazen. Also, beside, besides human casualties, they killed a ton of horses and camels. The thing that most people don't consider when it comes to logistics for an army is how do they eat? Who does their laundry? Who keeps them healthy when they're sick? Who sets up their tents at the end of the day? All of those things have people that go along with them. Most armies have a baggage train with them that is at least as, as large as the army itself. And you can't really get an army to move very fast if you don't have baggage animals. And you can't really do a proper cavalry if you don't have the horses to ride. So killing these animals was a massive blow to this army. 
And it doesn't really reflect well in that 15,000 casualty number because it, you know, yeah, they, they killed or disabled 15,000 people, but they also basically crippled the entire army's ability to move at full speed. Right, yeah. Not that many Volachians were killed in this raid. There was also a counterattack the next morning. Between the night raid and the, the counterattack, only about 5,000 casualties. And a lot of those were wounded rather than killed outright. Surprisingly few, given the odds, given the circumstances. Yeah, it was it was quite successful as far as night raids go. Night raids are tricky. I mean, until the advent of flares and then night vision, a night raid is so risky. You're just as likely to kill someone on your own side as you are to kill an enemy. Right. It's, Poor it's, visibility, no real way to coordinate. Exactly. Yeah, very, very, very tricky. But it was quite successful and is still considered a fairly important uh, military victory in uh, Romania today. The next day, again, even more furious, Mehmed moves on the capital. But he, before he even gets to the city, he notices on either side of the road bodies on pikes. Those 20,000 Turks that he wrote about killing, Vlad had set every single one of them up on pikes on the way into his capital city. So the Turkish army had to ride down this highway for miles, framed on either side with stakes with bodies mounted on them. Wow, who had that job? You know, I didn't even consider that. <laughs> that would be especially terrible, especially because most of these people were impaled alive. <sighs> okay. <laughs> so, um, I think it's fair to say then that this army has been demoralized. When they got to Chergoviste, it was empty. They had abandoned the entire city. The gates were wide open. Again, all about the message. Vlad, your PR is off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're constantly on message. Mehmed was apparently so rattled by this, by this experience that he nearly left to go back to Constantinople then and there. It was only through like convincing from like his advisors that basically he would be seen as emasculated if he left at this point it was only after that convincing that he actually stayed on with the campaign the entire army was so rattled though it wasn't just Mehmed. i mean just i i can't even imagine the psychological impact that that would have on a person i don't want to consider it i prefer not to think about it too deeply yeah i they've already gone through so much to get to that point and then to walk down that road with nothing at the end especially like that's just vlad clearly understood something about the human mind that maybe wasn't readily apparent to everybody it seems that the thing that he understood especially well was fear as well as just kind of the sense of futility he was really good at making people feel like, "What's? Why am I even doing this anymore?" Really know how to take the wind out of uh, wind out of your sails. Absolutely. But again, the the thing that I find interesting about this is that 
Was this terrible? Yes. Was this cruel? Absolutely. Was this morbid? Definitely. Was this pointless? No. And again, what you know, whether whether that whether that point is worth the the horrible atrocity that was committed is is clearly up for debate. And by up for debate, I mean some people will still debate that it's an okay thing. <laughs> but but um, that that's a hard angle to take, I think, for anybody in this day and age. I think we're going to circle around uh, back around to that one. All right, fair enough. I I agree. I think it should be hard to to take, but again, we'll 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 come back to that one uh, after the break. The Volachian army, well, I mean specifically, uh, Vlad continued to retreat north. Mehmed decided to uh, kind of pull out his wild card at this point and set up Radu, his brother, as the new governor of Cherkoviste. That is an interesting symmetry. Because Radu is also a son of Vlad II, Vlad Dracula, and therefore has the has as much hereditary right to rule as Vlad III. True, true. Which one was older? Or does that matter? I don't remember. I think Vlad III was older. Okay, yeah. But I'll but check still, it I... and put it, in, put it in the notes. But the point is, neither of them was the oldest. The oldest died during the coup. Yeah, quite quite horribly. Yes. There's so so I mean he has legitimacy there. And what's more, he has essentially become completely Turkish for all intents and purposes, socially. He's converted to Islam. He is uh, you know, he he's he's wholeheartedly on the Turkish side, and they basically decide to reward him for this loyalty by setting him up here. Was he being used by Mehmed II? Absolutely. Did he also get what he wanted? Possibly. So, I mean, you could make the argument that he was being used, but if you want to be used, is it a problem? No, I... Yeah. Also, he was apparently quite handsome. He was really good looking. (laughs) He was really good looking. Have you ever seen pictures of Vlad the Impaler? Uh, I think I remember seeing the Wikipedia. He's just got such an amazing mustache. He does. That's <laughs> epic. It's, it, there, you can see a family resemblance if you look up Radu, the handsome. Okay. There's definite definite family resemblance. A little bit better bone, bone structure. <laughs> so, I mean, they set him up in Cherkoviste in the hopes that he would, they, they, they would kind of set up a like a pro-Ottoman presence in the area that it would lead to eventual overthrow of the whole region. But, so when you say the capital was empty, you mean from a military standpoint. There was still a population there. I, there was a small population there. Anyone that had wanted to leave was allowed to leave. And I mean, the thing to consider, too, is that in general, sack, you, you don't want to be in a city when it's being sacked. If you want like some general life tips, <laughs> get out of a city yeah. before it gets sacked. Because a, a, a city in the process of being sacked is probably one of the worst places on Earth. It is one of the, there's something about that event that triggers the absolute worst things in human beings that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And it's to to the point that it's a little bit difficult to even consider some of the things that people do. Get out of the city. If you got the option, just leave. And uh, they would have known that. That being said, once uh, the Ottoman army moves through and, holds the city and continues moving 
uh, after the army. No, there's no reason not to go back. If they're going to steal your stuff, they would have done it. Right. Everybody's calmed down. Sacking complete. <laughs> they're all a little. They're all a little blue over the journey into the city. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing too is that they would have left him with a garrison of troops. They would have encouraged people to come back into the area. It wouldn't have been hard to get that that capital repopulated. Vlad just kept retreating all the way into Moldavia. He just left Falachia, kind of left troops behind as he went to slow the, the Ottomans down. But once he was fully out of the country and the Ottomans had confirmed that he had been driven out, they just made Radu ruler of Falachia. Um, the, the title is Bey, but essentially Prince of Falachia. Um, and established him as as uh, as the leader. Vlad went to Matthias Corvinus and basically said, I can take this back. I just need a little bit of help from Hungary. Again, this is not new stuff for uh, for Wallachia. If you've got problems with one big power, you go to the other one and ask for some help. A little bit more of an extreme situation. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the other thing is, you know, number one, he's got a strong, well, strong-ish relationship with uh, Corvinus at this point. They've been working together for a while. And number two, it's in Corvinus's interest to get rid of Radu because, well, Vlad was far more pro-Hungary than Radu is. So it you just keep playing the game. It's, it's the exact same thing over and over again. Corvinus agrees to help him out. Vlad also manages to get some Moldavian troops because, again, his his cousin is the ruler of Moldavia, Stephen III, and starts heading back towards Wallachia. But as soon as he enters Wallachia, a really interesting thing happens. They meet up with the Hungarian troops, and the Hungarian troops immediately arrest Vlad, and they take him back to Hungary. I see. See, I was wondering about that. Corvanus isn't going to be like super happy about how all this went down considering you know he was pretty opposed to it from the beginning he was pretty opposed to it from the beginning uh yeah it's an interesting turn it absolutely is an interesting turn which makes this a really good place to take a break (laughs) and after the break I think we're going to talk about what happened why why did that just happen sounds good All right, we're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And Vlad was just uh, arrested out of nowhere. Yeah. Surprise. I, so, yeah. I feel like maybe he should have, I don't know, I've seen this coming, but. Well, I mean. It's a bit of an unexpected move. It's pretty unexpected, especially considering that they just promised to help him take back the the throne of Wallachia. Yeah. Why would he do this? Why? Here's some context that it might be helpful for you to know. I mentioned this way back in the very first section, so you've probably forgotten about it, but the King of Hungary was having a lot of problems with the Holy Roman Empire. Right, yes. And, like, yeah, that had been a thorn in Matthias Corvinus's side, but an interesting opportunity has just come up. Namely that 
Corvinus has a shot at potentially being next in line for the crown of the Holy Roman Empire. Which means that he needs to turn all of his attention west to the political machinations going on in Central Europe. Because you don't just make a bid for the crown of the Holy Roman Empire, like, as a side gig. <laughs> that's not... That's a full-time job. That's a full-time job. And so, basically, like, he kind of just didn't want to deal with Vlad anymore. Can you just, like, just stop? Just stop doing things, Vlad? That would be... That'd be great. Which was a big problem for Corvinus's, uh image, because part of the job as Holy Roman Empire and uh, Emperor, and part of... Um, his responsibility as king of Hungary. So part of what he was campaigning on, essentially, if we want to frame it in those terms, was as a protector of Christianity. And I mean, Valachia was a Christian territory. And so abandoning it to the Ottomans was kind of a problem image-wise. Yeah. And so what happened was in order to kind of make that whole problem go away in the least problematic way possible was that Corvinus had actually had documents forged showing that Vlad was much closer in league with the Ottomans than he actually was. How do you sell that? <laughs> I know, right? Well, I mean, he's, he's spent so much time in bed with them already that it's pretty believable. I guess if you leave out the uh, recent events. Well, he claimed that he was in league with the Ottomans and had, and had essentially given up his territory to the Ottomans. Uh, okay. I um, suppose it'd be easy enough to, to make that up. Yeah, under a false pretext that, you know, of, of battles where, you know, he, he was, you know, he spent the whole time backing off. He never actually ended up in pitched battle with the Ottomans, which if you ignore the context of the night battle, kind of looks like maybe he just handed it to the Ottomans. It's not like there was some, uh, you know, war photographers running through taking pictures of 20,000 impaled corpses that they could just throw in the newspaper and distribute. Well, exactly. And I mean, those stories were absolutely going around. But yeah, who's to say? Things got exaggerated all the time back then. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, like, journalistic standards were, like, a big deal yeah, yeah, yeah. in the 15th century. <laughs> not, not really that big. Yeah. So, I mean, this this bit of Corvinus's didn't go that well. He got some concessions from the Holy Roman Emperor. We don't need to get into the all the nuts and bolts of it. But essentially, he got the crown of Hungary back, which was something that he didn't actually have before in return for sort of like a symbolic subjugation to the Holy Roman Empire. Keep in mind that this is a, a relationship that would end up eventually turning into the Austro-Hungarian Empire that we talk oh. about for World War One, right? So... Austria and Hungary, they 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 play pretty closely, but this is the start of the uh, uh, what's the family Habsburg, the Habsburgs. No, Corvinus was not a Habsburg, but yeah, we're getting pretty close to that okay. whole thing. I know some stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, we're we're not we're not quite in that area, but we're okay. we're we're dancing right around. The Fair edges. enough. Yeah. I mean, I ultimately I think he lost more than he gained in this whole deal. If he had backed. Vlad, there was probably a pretty good chance that he could have made a pretty good go against the Ottomans. Especially considering what kind of shape that they were in. Yeah. But he just he chose to cut his losses in what would become Romania in order to focus on Central European 
politics fell through for him. And now he's imprisoned his biggest ally, didn't get what he wanted in the West. And oops, sorry, bud. Guess that was that was my mistake. Like, what do you say at that point? Yeah. So Vlad was probably a little upset about this. You know, the records of his imprisonment are kind of vague. We don't have a ton of information about it to the point that I don't even really know exactly how long he was in jail. Maybe as long as eight years. He was definitely out by 1470. However, probably he was out before that. One thing that really changed things around for Corvinus was that in 1467, there was a major revolt in Transylvania. And it's likely that that was a bit of a wake-up call for him in terms of his political his political control over the area and the kind of help he might need hmm. and how it might be kind of valuable to have an ally like Vlad the Impaler on his side, maybe keeping the peace in the area while he concentrates on things that he saw as more important. For example, trying to rule the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> But what's certain is that by 1470, he was out of jail and uh, and was uh, spending time in mostly in Moldavia with his with his cousin. I said this one other time that if I was writing this story, what would happen next uh, in this specific instance is that there would be a massive showdown between these two brothers because it would be really interesting just thematically. They've both been through this like same experience in their lives, but it affected them in two very different ways that end up putting them on two different sides of this conflict. And mm, just the the symmetry and the the neatness of the narrative oh, yeah. would be so pat, you know? So if I'm writing this book, yeah, that's absolutely what happens next. Uh, unfortunately, what really happens is that Radu dies in 1475 without any real satisfaction being had. And uh, when he dies, the Ottomans put into place a ruler named Basarab the Elder, who's like full on Turkish. Like they're not even pretending to get a Volachian in there anymore. And Vlad kind of goes, ah, I, I can't, I can't let this stand. Like, this is, this is no good. Like, we need to take Valachia back for the Valachians kind of thing. Yeah. You know, cue swelling music. <laughs> <laughs> and so he starts gathering his own troops. He goes to Stephen III, asks him for military support, which he agrees to readily. Again, it's Vlad's cousin, and he's, he's supported him politically and militarily uh, this whole time. So he, he says, yes, absolutely, no problem. We'll help you out. He also goes to... The ruler in Transylvania is also a Stephen. This is Stephen V of Transylvania and asks for his support. Fine. And just for good measure, he decides to bite the bullet and go to Hungary and say, listen, we've had a really rough decade or so. I need your help worse than I need to hold a grudge. (laughs) You need to get rid of the Ottomans. I'm going to need some men from you to take this throne back. Could you show up and please not arrest me this time? Just help me get rid of Basarab. Go home afterwards. I don't care, but I'm going to need your help for this first stretch. And Corvinus agrees. Okay, fine. And every every time I say this stuff about them agreeing to do what Valachia wants, you, you give me this look like, 
You can't believe that it's happening. I, I can't stress enough how this is just the nature of Valachia. This yeah. Is the nature of Romania. This is how it existed for hundreds of years is going back and forth between these two powers, making them incredibly angry and then flipping around and manipulating them into helping them. It's a really weird existence. It is. Yeah. And it shouldn't be, but it is. It's, it's actually quite successful. And yeah, they're always on the knife's edge, but they're doing a pretty good job of balancing there. So yeah, they pile into Valachia to head for the capital. Basarab flees, just decides he doesn't even want to deal with this. I mean, he's more of an administrator than he is a, a warrior. And that's never really going to fly in Valachia. Yeah. But I mean, if you're the Ottoman Empire and you're seeing Valachia as just like an outlying province, that's it's a smart... You- where you send somebody to have a nice cushy governorship yeah so vlog gets his throne back great perfect everything went as uh, according to plan this is fantastic right yeah except like most of those troops leave immediately the hungarians all go back home the transylvanians back home the moldavians aren't that many of them there wasn't like a battle where they overthrew the turks and the problem with that is because they all fled they all just kind of regroup right away. And they come after Vlad very quickly. Like, really quickly. Vlad had maybe 4,000 men. I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name. Is the same guy in charge of the Ottomans? Mehmed II? Yes. I'm not sure if he's still in charge or not. I, I don't have that in my uh, They're moving in that quickly. If anybody's going to have a grudge, it's that guy. I don't think it... I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he still was. He was fairly young when he accomplished a lot of that stuff that we talked about earlier. But this is 20, 23 years, 24 years after the fall of Constantinople. He wouldn't necessarily be a young man anymore if he is still alive. Uh, at that point in time, 25, 24 years is a it's a pretty long time. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll throw it in the, in the show notes Wanda, as to whether or not he was still around. But as I said, he was pretty young back then. He has a pretty good shot of being still around. Long story short, this final rule of Vlad, nearly two months. It didn't last all that long. But the fun part is we don't know how he died. There are a few different versions of how he may have gone out. He may have gone out fighting the Turks in the middle of pitched battle, surrounded by his Moldavian bodyguards in the most heroic fashion. Might have been a hunting accident. Uh, (laughs) that's one of the options he may have been accidentally killed by one of his own men during a battle that kind of thing can happen at that point in time I mean war is a dangerous thing (laughs) he may have also been killed by disloyal boyars who opposed the Ottomans but also opposed Vlad personally took issue with his particular ruling style and finally I saw one uh, that said that he may have been uh, executed, beheaded by the Turks, his his head carried back to Constantinople in a jar of honey, and then, for irony's sake, I would assume, put on uh, a very tall pike out front of the city walls to show that he had been defeated. I was about to say, hilariously, that's what I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> this is a funny thing about, but like, what, about what, Vlad. It brings out do? the oddest reactions in people. Like, like, really strange. Like, you say it, and then you go, like, wait, hang on. That's a yeah, weird thing to say. That's a weird thing to say. 
I felt the same way when I learned about the the turban incident and nailing the turbans. Yeah, to the heads, well, where I went, oh, that's oh, that's so smart, and it's like, ah, actually, that's really grisly. But well, and plus, you set them up on a bad on a bad path because, like, you, for where we are today, you know, it's just the the act of act, asking them to take off their hat. I'm trying to think of like what that situation looks like today, and that kind of is a thing that could happen today. Oh, I mean, we've gone through really similar stuff not that long ago now in uh, in Canadian politics. Yeah. I mean, we, we're consistently going through this in Canadian politics, Pretty especially much. in Quebec, in terms of almost always headgear for Muslim women. And it's couched in a lot of different types of language. But uh, yeah, this isn't, for, for the most part, other than extreme circumstances, no one's being assaulted over it, although that does happen. But... Yeah, it's not really that far away, is it? Yeah, and I mean, it's that putting him in this position off the start. He's, he's just, he doesn't feel like the good guy in his own narrative to sure. me. Sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's the thing. If you, if you look at the narrative contemporarily of, say, I mean, he was very popular even when he was alive. People would tell these stories because they're compelling stories. They were also outrageous, even for the standards of the 15th century. People were like, whoa, this guy needs to tone it down. Like, <laughs> I think one of the stories was like uh, like the story of the warlord Dracula, who was out of control or something like that. It was a really interesting title and it was translated. I think out of control was what they what they used. Yeah. Anyways, uh, you know, you look at the German stories and they're focusing on the blood and gore and like how uh, how much pleasure the man takes in in violence and and uh, and destruction. Whereas if you look at the the storylines that are coming out of Russia, they're they're hailing this man as a hero that's managing to uh, drive back the the heathen Turkish horde, and uh, you know doing so from a position of disadvantage and using everything at his disposal to do so. Yeah, and I can certainly see that perspective on, especially for his own people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's quite popular in Romania. Yeah, uh, which is which is quite interesting, and I mean, a lot of the questions that I've been peppering through this show are, are you know, questions without answers, or or you know, are are certainly shades of gray. But I mean, it, it I think I think he's a really good example because he's such a, an extreme example of you know what are we willing to forgive for the sake of the narrative in terms of you know national identity in terms of our preferred uh, interpretation of a history. I mean, you can make a lot of excuses for a lot of the things that Vlad the Impaler did and, and justify a lot of them. You know, there are there are a great many that I don't think you really can. I, I know there are people out there that, that would or would try. I mean, killing civilians is, it's, yeah, is, it's, is pretty it's unforgivable. The civilian atrocities. But... That's the kind of thing that would be framed as Vlad looking at the situation as a hopeless one, realizing that one of the largest armies in the world is on his doorstep and trying to do what he could to retain his national identity. So, I mean, he's doing it for Vlad is is really the short version of it, right? And you can look at it strategically, but ultimately, I mean, you, you talked about it earlier, it's hard to imagine walking down that road. I mean, I asked the question somewhat tongue-in-cheek at the time, but somebody had to put all those bodies up. And Absolutely. strategy or no, 
you have to like there has to be I feel like a certain kind of individual who's capable of doing that to somebody, even for a strategic purpose. I, I absolutely agree. He was clearly a ruthless man. And, you know, like I, like I said, I'm not I'm not looking to defend him at all. It's just interesting. The, the other thing that I find really interesting is the amount that the gap of centuries allows us to distance ourselves from some of the realities of some of these very horrific and visceral events. I mean, the way that people talk about, for example, the Mongolians is is really interesting in that they'll go like, yeah, they, they killed a lot of people, but look at all these good things that they did. Same thing with Vlad the Impaler. It's like, well, yeah, okay, so he killed some civilians, but, you know, he managed to halt the advance of the Ottoman Empire into Europe. And without uh, w- without him killing all of those civilians, you know, who's to say how far the Ottoman Empire could have could have moved into into Europe? Could they have possibly taken Hungary over? Could they have even moved into the Holy Roman Empire? Would Europe as a whole have been taken over and lost its entire identity? Right. We're playing the what-if game at that point. Yeah. But what we're talking about here is trying to justify the actions of a pretty terrible person. Correct. And it's done. It's a, it's a thing that's done. People do it. And the problem with it is that there's, number one, a grain of truth to it. The Ottomans were on a tear. And what he did definitely, like, for sure, stopped Slowed them right down. Number two, that distance of time is making us discount those minimum 20,000 lives because they're just numbers on a page. 20,000 is meaningless. Was it, uh, I'll have to look this up because I won't remember, but was it uh, Stalin that said uh, one is a murder, a million is a statistic? I've heard the quote, but I'm not sure who said it. One is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Yeah. Yeah, distance and time kind of does a similar thing. You hear about a, something happening to an individual in history and you kind of go like, oh, that's that's too bad. And you hear, you know, hundreds of thousands of casualties in, in certain battles in the in, in the First World War. And There's you definitely like, a... Oh, wow, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And that's about the end of your engagement. There's a dissociation. So, yeah, yeah. It's so long ago and it's so big and it's so hard to wrap your head around that like... To actually think about it, to actually put yourself in the headspace of walking down that road with 10,000 spikes on each side of you. Like, how long would you have to walk before you walked by 10,000 people impaled on wooden spikes? Yeah, I... I don't want to see one person impaled on a wooden spike ever. No. I certainly don't want to see twenty over 20,000. The humanity of it, of, of it is lost somewhat in the scale of it, and that's it. It feels it feels inhuman. It feels and the, monstrous. The reason, yeah, monstrous, absolutely. I I think I think the thing that I like the most about Vlad as an as, as an example of this is that you have people that are using the usual justifications for this stuff. He was only doing it to protect himself. He was only doing it because he was being attacked by the Ottomans. He you know he, you know this and that. And you can pretty easily like look at that and be like, but no, like that's maybe not good enough to justify what he just did. Well, and plus, if you roll back the tape far enough, it's because he didn't want to pay. Because he couldn't pay, to be fair, and was worried about the consequences of not being able to pay. 
And this is okay. the thing. We can yeah. do this all day long. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's find reasons for it. Yeah. It's it's amazing. His ability to to just dodge that that light of of judgment is 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 astounding. But the thing that I like about it is that I I, I like that it forces you to question similar judgments uh, or justifications about other things that you've heard about in history. Because I mean like, yeah, this guy went off the deep end. Like, he hit it hard, and he probably shouldn't have. What other things are we looking at in our history and going, like, yeah, well, that was bad, but, like, it's probably okay because of this. Or, like, that was bad, but it could have been so much worse because of this hypothetical situation that we're pretty sure it prevented. Or, you know, even not necessarily in history, maybe even uh, in in our modern world, things like uh, preemptive strikes, for example, and how much that is a reasonable justification for taking actions that in another context could be considered criminal or even monstrous. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is you, you gotta, you gotta watch what you're, what you're making okay in your head, because to some extent you gotta make things okay. To some extent you have to protect yourself like psychologically from some of the things that have happened. Oh yeah. Are you just going to get hung up on it? You, you can't, there, there's no one in the world that, you know, isn't already broken somehow that wouldn't be broken by all of the information that you take in on a, you know, about some of this stuff without finding a way to minimize it, to abstract it to a point where you can even conceive of it. Right. Like I I keep saying this, there are 20,000 people spiked, you know, on on wooden spikes stood up along the road. And and it just, there's no point in time where that could possibly just be, uh, an okay thing and is it was it effective yes did it achieve the goal that he was trying to achieve sure does that make it okay no no that's still messed up that's so real that, that is always going to be super messed up <laughs> yeah there's no there's no situation <laughs> where that's okay yeah there's no situation and it does make me wonder though you know what are people going to think about the wars of this century in four or five hundred years? Do you think they'll have that dissociation? I almost guarantee it. See, the only reason why I doubt it, even in the slightest, is that we're now in an era where the amount of documentation taking a particular viewpoint on that is so extensive and so recorded. Think about all of the video games and movies and all of that where it's just like we need some villains period appropriate oh i know nazis mm-hmm. throw them in there sure they're like for how long yeah well, yeah i don't know for how long until people get bored of shooting nazis or until somebody worse comes along or until it's been long enough since somebody else was a villain that it's now okay to throw them in as a token villain i mean people get bored of nazis so they switch to zombies as the default bad guy yeah or they switch to aliens as the default yeah bad guy but see invent uh, a fictional vaguely fascist regime even you're just saying that just now it's like you have just lumped in zombies aliens nazis yep 
one of them's one of them's a group of people. Yeah, and a lot of that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the convenience of the narrative of the Second World War that we've created as a society, i.e., allies good, Nazis bad, and it's very convenient, and it's made for a cultural shorthand of evilness. It's convenient, but like, I I I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong. I think it's it's great that we. Have it in a, in a way, um, and this is going to get into some dicey subject matter. That's okay. Um, let's no. Let's let's get into it. I'm 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 excited. Okay, you're safe. I, I promise. <laughs> I'll help you out. Hitler's not the first world conqueror type to mm-hmm. be into genocide. That's true. He's uh, certainly not the last. And we don't seem to uh, villainize. The other one's in quite the same fashion. And is it just distance? Is it time that allows us to... We've never gone to full-out, like full, all-out, full-scale war with any of those other powers. You could certainly look at someone like, say, Stalin or Mao as killing far more people with their... Either through their policies... I mean, in Mao's case, it was practically, you know, a matter of incompetence as much as it was maliciousness <laughs> right uh in stalin's case it pretty much was br- just straight brutality yeah but i think so with the nazis number one super recognizable slap a swastika on something they're a nazi you know exactly what they are you know they're bad no problem harder to do that with say a russian soldier i guess you could put a hammer and sickle on them doesn't have the same you know, it, well, it's, it's more ambiguous a little bit because that symbol has been uh, used for a lot of different things since uh, I play a lot of video games. I'm going to go back to that. But I mean, I played through the. Um, yeah, I, I, I uh, think I remember red faction. when you, you read faction. Thank you. They're very pro hammer and sickle. So. When when World War Two ended, so did the swastika, you know, at, at least in the West, you stop seeing swastikas anywhere. Uh, in fact, it became a crime in Germany to display it. And I certainly wouldn't recommend going and hanging a swastika flag out front of your house, even though technically, legally, you probably could under freedom of speech laws. Yeah, see, you just got uncomfortable with that. <laughs> who's, who's used that swastika in the West since World War II? White supremacist groups? Yeah, hate groups Pretty that are much. no better than the Nazis and maybe even worse. Yeah. The thing, the thing there is that we... Okay, there's, there's a couple of things. Number one, we're still pretty close to World War II. Oh, yeah, it's not been that long, relatively speaking. Number two, that's the last real war that we've had. Well... We could get into that a little bit further, but like true pitched battle between equal powers hasn't happened in a while. Yeah, okay. There's been lots of regional conflicts, but no conflicts between world powers since then. You could argue that there was the Cold War, but it was not a true war. And certainly there's been lots of conflict. Oh, of course, but the majority of that conflict has been much, much different. Number three, talking about... World War II in terms of it being everyone versus the Nazis is reductionist and cuts out a wide swath of people, namely everyone that served in the Wehrmacht that wasn't part of the Nazi party. So politically did not agree with the ideals of Nazism, 
but were forced to fight in the German army, the Wehrmacht, no differently than everyone that was conscripted in Western countries. And I'm not saying that we should that that we should discount the uh, the evils of the ideas of Nazism because some of the people didn't want to be there. But what I am saying is that it has been simplified and packaged in a very digestible way because you don't want to think about German soldiers as being regular guys who worked a regular job and had a regular family until this whole war thing came up and then were forced into combat. You want to think about them as a terrible fascist anti-semitic inglorious bastards wolfenstein true drinking the kool-aid terrible nazis you want them to be you want them to relish committing war crimes you want them to have genocide listed under their likes on facebook because (laughs) that makes it that makes it easier to conceptualize as the enemy yeah it just it just does it's easier to Think of that person as someone who deserves to lose a war. So if we bring the conversation around, I mean, you're talking about groups that hate each other so, so much. Mm -hmm. I have to believe that the amount of kind of anti-national sentiment that we have now doesn't even compare to the amount that the people of... I don't, I'm not going to pronounce the country. I can't even do it. Valachia. Hate the Ottoman Empire. I would agree with that. But I mean, that. Uh, but even, even then, it's a more complex relationship than that. Because often the Ottomans have been their, their allies. Often the Ottomans have been instrumental in the Valachians keeping their, uh, their independence from Hungary. Maybe just Vlad then. And I mean, Vlad as leader of them will have impacted many of the people there but he had to have hated them a lot to have done what he did but did he because i mean if the shoe had been on the other foot and this had been this had begun with a hungarian expansion towards asia and then a demand to Wallachia for tribute and the you know the sultan of of the ottoman empire mehmed offering financial compensation as a means to keep the Christians out of Asia. And the Valachians had been caught in the middle of that and said, hey, I know how you could spend that gold. Pay us to keep the Hungarians out. Right, then maybe. Can you guarantee me that he wouldn't have impaled Hungarians? No. Because that's the thing. Is this a, it, was, that, was that a functional act or was that an act of true hatred was it a cultural act was it an act of genocide was you know it what? i can't guarantee it but there's there's the history there and we, we can argue about how much it has impacted him but mm-hmm. the fact that he was implanted with them against his will mm-hmm. for what, five years mm-hmm. formative years mm-hmm. that played a you know a pretty strong role in his opposition to them the amount of subterfuge of 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 constantly but the only thing that we can guarantee there is also that that time gave him the tools right. to be effective at subverting them. Not necessarily that also, it created a, a vendetta of some kind against them. That's the, that's the one weakness of the way that I like to 
uh, a tr- uh, to approach history in this show as as kind of a narrative, as a as a story, as an arc, is that sometimes it leads to attributing more uh, intentionality than maybe is necessarily more, true, uh, because uh, a lot of this stuff gets kind of added in in hindsight. You know, sometimes even if you ask somebody about their intentionality of something, they'll invent something more convenient than because I felt like it or because I didn't know what to do. And so I did that or because I, you know, because I had to for this reason that I don't want to admit. Right. I mean, and this is another reason that I tend to keep speculative history off of this show is that we can go down this rabbit hole for hours and hours <laughs> you know if, if hey if you want to stick around for a few hours just <laughs> grab a drink or something and just hang out yeah. and do spec history yeah cool but that's not real history right fair and you know well and, and and to be fair to you it's it's also me that brought that up it's just that that specific type of, of speculative history is illustrative to the intentionality of the actions that vlad took against the ottomans namely did he do it only because they were ottomans and I don't know. I mean, the the history of Valachia and its rulers and everything that Vlad would have been taught about ruling Valachia and everything that he would have known growing up as a Valachian was you are caught between two huge powers, both of whom want to destroy you. Don't let them do that. Use whatever tools are at your disposal to preserve Valachia and its independence. Because that is our tradition. Our tradition has always been one of, ever since we separated from Hungary, we have maintained a balance between this two power, these two powers. When the scale tips too far one way, put your thumb on the other side. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the, the, past, the past 10, 15 minutes has just been going in circles in terms of, I don't know. I don't know what his motivations were. I, I, I don't know why he would have done those things. Uh, I don't think they're okay, but is it ever okay? Uh, no, but how can people think that? And I think, I, think that, I think that this is a really good way of illustrating how people can justify this sort of atrocity because it's not hard to figure out the other side on this one, I don't think. No, I, I would agree with that. And it's important to remember that that's something that we do every day with every piece of our history is we try to make it as palatable to ourselves as possible and to try and twist the story in such a way that we like it best as much as the facts will allow us to do. Right. Which, yeah, I, I'm definitely guilty of. Oh, so am I. Every, every single person that's ever read any piece of history has, has looked for a way to make it as nice as possible. <laughs> And as simple as possible and as logical as possible. And all of these things that history is not like, it's really not like, I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about things that uh, are, are sloppy and that don't have good beginnings and endings. If the story worked out the way we wanted them to, he would have fought his brother. Well, that's if, what you said. Like, he, you know, if like, you were writing this, this is what would happen. But instead, they both died for some reason. Yeah, and, and for, for completely separate reasons. And as far as I know, with no ill will towards one another. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't, it's 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 messy. It doesn't work out that way. Yeah. And we want it to because, I don't know, I think, I think storytelling is really important to people. And I think that they want, I, I think that we want our reality to reflect our stories as much as possible and and you know when it doesn't work out that way we try and make it fit anyway and we're just jamming round pegs into square holes and 
claim that they fit. But um, yeah, yeah, he, he, I, I think, I think Vlad's really good for that, for forcing us to confront the fact that no, it's not always that simple. Sometimes we want someone to be good. Sometimes we want there to be a good guy and a bad guy. Sometimes we want there to be a reason for everything bad that ever happens. It just we don't always, don't always get that. You don't always get that. Yeah. With Vlad, at least you get a pretty good story out of it, even when you don't mess around with it. That's true. The facts are uh, pretty uh, pretty captivating. Do we want to touch on Bram Stoker real quick? <laughs> sure thing. How, found, did, how did that even... He found the name. He really liked it. For the story, he wanted... It, basically, the the background there is that the there's legends all over the world of vampires but there's a very specifically balkan idea of vampires which is what bram stoker decided that he wanted to use and so for his novel which by the way i recommend everyone read sometimes you know how old books sometimes they're just they seem real old and they got boring language and they are just a real drag to read not the case with bram stoker's dracula it is an excellent read to this day very captivating, very compelling. He wanted a very Eastern European idea of, of a vampire, and so he decided that it would be from the Transylvania region, which is close enough to Wallachia. It borders it. He didn't quite uh, fully check his facts on that, or he didn't care? I don't think he really cared. Yeah. He decided for the purposes of his story that that Dracula, that the, the vampire Dracula had been just this exceptional person in life and that he had been a, a, an amazing military commander as well as many other uh, amazing traits. And one of the things that he wanted for the book was like an example of like a, an amazing battle that had taken place in that region. And he told, and he chose uh, the night battle and he actually describes the night battle in sort of an abstract way in the book as having been uh, somewhere that Dracula had, had commanded while he was still alive and he liked the name, and the name has new connotations ever since, you know, all the impalings. Yes. <laughs> and it uh, it basically went from there. The rest of it has very little to do with any factual basis. What about the whole stake through the heart? Is that an impaling I, reference? I it doesn't quite line up so. that way. I but... think that has more to do with lore. Other vampire lore? Yeah. Lore? He didn't invent that? Mm, I don't think he invented it. I would have to check on that, but I don't think the stake through the heart was invented by him. Fair enough. Um, that being said, he invented a lot of the common tropes for vampires. He may well have. If he did, I don't think it was based on the fact that he was originally named Vlad the Impaler. I think that most, if, if you read Dracula, most of the ways that he is defeated, you can kind of see where else in folklore they come from. And it will have similarities to, say, uh, zombies, things like that. Uh, I mean, cutting off the head is also a very important way of getting rid of a vampire, um, right? And 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 things like that. So I I don't I don't think that the he got the idea of the stake through the heart from it being Vlad the Impaler. Fair enough. So long story short, it has very nothing, to, very little to do with the actual Vlad well, the Third of. I, I... While that's true, I still wonder if it was not for Dracula, if if Vlad the Impaler would not be, I don't want to say a household name, but... So, 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Why do we talk about Vlad the Impaler? I mean, obviously the reason that you know the name is is because of the Dracula connection. I think the I think if you had to pick what's important about this guy that makes him stand out from every other Balkan warlord that's been overthrown two or three times throughout their career, I, I would say it would be halting the, the progress of the Ottomans after the fall of Constantinople. Because he did do that. And we can't discount that. However horrible he may have been otherwise but um yeah i i, I think if it wasn't for the dracula connection you, you, you'd be right not as many people would be familiar with the name vlad the impaler but he has a very interesting story totally independent of that and that's absolutely pretty cool yeah and i'm i'm, I'm really glad you uh you chose it i i really enjoyed uh researching this one and i'm i really enjoyed sitting down and talking with you today it was so, a good story thank you so much for coming on i always appreciate it thanks for having me Whether he's considered a hero or a monster, effective or psychotic, Vlad's part in the story of the spread of the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century elevates him to one of the more important leaders in world history. While it's impossible to know what the world might have been without his presence, there's no doubt that his existence and actions had an impact on the world we have now. Next time on HI101, we'll be taking a look at the development of modern forensic science and, in the course of its development, the Jack the Ripper murders. The holidays may throw me off by a few days, but the episode will be up very early in January, I promise. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.